Isaiah 5.20, in, uh, in this particular verse uh, that was just read, Isaiah is describing one of the sins that the Jewish people are guilty of that will ultimately lead to the destruction of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians in 720 AD, uh, BC rather, and then later on to the destruction of the southern kingdom by the Babylonians in 586 BC. Now Isaiah, you know, this is not the only sin mentioned in the passage, you know, naming good, evil, evil, good, so on. That's not the only sin that he mentions. He also mentions the abuse of alcohol. He mentions immoral revelry, dishonesty, corruption, arrogance before God. There's a whole laundry list of sins that the nation was guilty of at the, at the time. But these things, you know, serious enough as they were, in verse 20, Isaiah describes not just a sinful act, but rather what a sinful nation had eventually come to. They were so wicked, he says, and so proud that they celebrated and promoted what was essentially evil and they restricted and labeled what was traditionally good as bad. And so Isaiah was telling the people that they had completely reversed the moral order and that God would punish them for having done that. It wasn't simply that they failed to obey or to comply to God's moral order. I mean, there's nothing new there. People have always failed in this regard. What was new was the attempt to actually change the order itself so that sinfulness was now considered acceptable and holiness and faith and obedience were to be rejected. So Isaiah was warning them that once they headed down this road, the only result would be destruction. Destruction because if they completely rejected God's moral order and then created one of their own, they would no longer be of any use to Him as His chosen people. Trying but failing to obey God's commands, this left them depending on God's mercy and strength for life and salvation. And you know what? That was acceptable to God. It's acceptable to Him that we try and fail and we depend on Him. That he'll, he'll work with us there. But making up and following their own laws, making up and following their own framework of morality would, and as history shows, did lead to a complete destruction of their nation. You know, we don't use that term anymore call evil good and good evil. You, know, you won't see that anywhere. You won't see that in a newspaper. You'll hear a preacher saying that, but you won't, you won't see that term anymore. Today we have more subtle ways of deconstructing the moral order set by God in this world. We say things like, well, love is what matters. We say things like that. Or every lifestyle deserves respect. Or we must guarantee everyone's rights or gender equality, marriage equality, a woman's right to choose. And my personal favorite, 
You don't want to be on the wrong side of history, do you? Yeah, that's my favorite. Now don't get me wrong, the terms that I've just said are legitimate in themselves. I mean, love does matter, of course it does. And we must respect everyone, and this idea is often guaranteed by law. But these terms have been hijacked by godless ideologues who use them to recreate the moral order of our nation into something that would have been unrecognizable to most Americans 75 years ago and contrary to God's word in any generation. I don't need to drag out a laundry list of social ills that plague our nation to make my point. One example can serve to represent the entire set. Recently, the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision, made marriage between two men or two women the law in all 50 states. Now, I don't have time to list all of the twisted arguments, political pressure, and likely fallout from this ruling. You know, I've got 30 minutes here. Suffice to say that American society groomed by decades of morally decadent entertainment, misinformed by a secular news media and educational system, and brainwashed by a wealthy and politically well-connected gay lobby, actually bought into the ridiculous, and I use the word ridiculous, premise that two men or two women should be able to marry each other with all the rights and privileges that heterosexual couples have. Now I say ridiculous because the one basis that all cultures and all religions throughout history have agreed on is that marriage is the best environment or relationship to have in order to have children. I say ridiculous because this is the only thing that gay couples cannot do. I mean, they can marry legally now. Uh, they can have sex. They can build a beautiful house. They can live together for a hundred years. Yes, they can even love each other, but they cannot produce a child which is the essential human, moral, social region for marriage in the first place. Ridiculous. I could say immoral, I could say unbiblical, I could say unchristian, and I could defend each argument, but I say ridiculous because gay marriage should never never have passed this very lowest bar of credibility. Talk about a low bar. You two people, you want to get married? Uh-huh. Can you have babies? No. Here's your marriage certificate. But five lawyers, five lawyers, who embody the entire social and intellectual waste of this generation's foolish thinking, have decided among themselves to change the moral order set by God and followed by all men for thousands of years. You know, Isaiah spoke of these when he said, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever 
in their own sight. Isaiah 5 verse 21. These three women and two men on the Supreme Court have now enshrined in law a new standard for what is right and what is wrong when it comes not only to marriage but also sexual expression as well. Enshrined it into the law of our land. Brothers and sisters, I'm not one to predict the end of this nation or this time. You know, I'm no prophet. God decides these things. But when I saw a picture of the White House lit up in the rainbow colors of the gay pride movement on the front page of the USA Today newspaper, I knew that something profound had taken place in our country and there's no going back to where we were. Now the proponents of same-sex marriage, from the president to the judges and most news and entertainment personalities, they love to warn Christians that you know, we're on the wrong side of history in this matter. They compare this ruling to the emancipation of the slaves after the Civil War or the right to vote for women. And their argument is that those who are against same-sex marriage today, well, they're like the ones who were for slavery in the past or those who didn't want the women to have the right to vote. You people, you know, you're the same as those people. You're on the wrong side of history. Talk about the wrong side of history. This accusation coming from people who have ignored and perverted history in order to force their fake civil rights agenda down the throat of an uninformed and gullible nation. The diabolic cleverness of their argument is that they are correct in stating the fact that not allowing gay couples to marry is discrimination. Now stay with me here. For example, not allowing marriage between a black person and a white person, yes, this is discrimination. Or not allowing a woman to vote because she's a woman, Yes, this is discrimination. And, 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 and paying a handicapped accountant less money than a non-handicapped accountant, yes, this is discrimination. So in this sense, they have a correct way to argue their case. For example, if a man and a woman can marry, well then it's discrimination not to let two men or two women marry. You know, that's their argument. After all, they are consenting adults who love each other. Now don't get me wrong, I said that they found a correct way to argue their case. An argument based on the principle of civil and human rights. But you see the one problem with this argument? It's a false argument. Let me tell you why. Civil or human rights protection is given to those who are by nature or some event brought into a certain condition or status. In other words, a situation or status over which they have no choice. Again, you're born or you become handicapped in some way, no choice. Or your gender or your culture, no choice. These are things you have no control over and uh, there are legal protections set in place so that you're not abused or discriminated against just because you're a woman or just because you're black or just because you're handicapped in some way. Now for many years, 
homosexuals in this country tried to gain acceptance for their lifestyle by using the scientific argument that they were just born that way. You know, it was just genetics, we can't help it. And they touted research, usually by gay researchers, that suggested that there might be a link between homosexual behavior and biology. The key words, maybe, suggest, perhaps, that's not proof. The problem was that they never found the genetic silver bullet that proved that there was a gay gene and if you had it you'd be automatically be disposed to same-sex attraction. In other words, genetically you couldn't help it, you were gay. Problem was they could never find the science to prove it. The strongest argument against the gay gene theory was the result of the famous twins research. And here I'm going to read quote from the report on this research. I quote, eight major studies of more than 10,000 sets of identical twins during the last two decades all arrive at the same conclusion. Gays were not born that way. At best, genetics is a minor factor, says Dr. Neil Whitehead, PhD in biochemistry and statistics. I continue to quote, Identical twins have the same genes or DNA and they are nurtured in equal prenatal conditions. Therefore, if homosexuality is caused by genetics or prenatal conditions and one twin is gay, the co-twin should also be gay. I mean, they're identical twins. Blue eyes, blue eyes. Blonde hair, blonde hair. Gay, gay. They're identical, right? So if both twins are not gay, then homosexuality cannot be genetically dictated. The predominant things that create homosexuality in one identical twin and not in the other have to be post-birth factors. Same-sex attraction, homosexuality, is caused by non-shared factor things. Things that happen to one twin but not the other or a personal response to an event by one of the twins or not the other. There's no answer to that research. There's no rebuttal to that research. They didn't, they didn't study 10 sets of twins or 15 sets of twins. They studied 10,000 sets of twins over a 20 year period. And this is just one of many scientific studies that concluded that genetics had very little or no effect on same-sex attraction. The consensus continues to be that same-sex attraction develops when a person is exposed to various experiences and situations as they grow up. For example, Homes that have no father, or a dominant mother and a weak father, or early exposure to pornography, especially gay pornography. Uh, sexual and uh, physical abuse is another factor. Uh, Same-sex experimentation during puberty. Uh, sexual confusion and anxiety. Permissive societies that encourage and encourage experimentation in this lifestyle. All of these factors 
All right? Create an environment that encourages same-sex behavior. Now listen, not everyone who experiences these things becomes gay. But many of these factors are present in the lives of those who experience same-sex attraction. So seeing that the scientific argument was going nowhere, the gay movement switched tactics and they began a push to find legitimacy using human and civil rights arguments. They cast themselves as victims of discrimination and they tied their wagon to the American civil rights movement and pressured government using this new approach. This is why I say that the way they argue is effective. I mean, it's how they convince the news media and the courts, even the president and public opinion. But the substance of their argument is false. And here's why. To achieve the status of a discriminated against minority, a person has to show that their condition is due to one of three factors or all three. One, genetics. In other words, it's your race, your gender, your handicap, whatever. Well, they never uh, proved that. Uh, two, events. In other words, there was an accident or an injury or a loss of ability. And three, your condition. In other words, you're not just black, but you're black and poor, or you're an ex-convict, or you're an immigrant. In other words, a situation that you're in that, that draws discrimina uh, discrimination to you. Well, homosexuals fail to qualify in any of these categories. I mean, homosexuality is not the result of genetics. This is not just the preacher's opinion. This is just fact. Uh, no one forces one to become gay. It's a condition that evolves slowly, mostly based on experience, environment, and decisions made. And also gays, they're not a downtrodden minority needing protection. I mean, they do and have wielded more influence than any other group that at most, I mean, uh, up till five years ago, the last you know, study, was it five, the, the, the census, 2010, I think the stent, there's still statistically only two to two and a half percent of the population that claim to be gay. What other two percent of the population of this nation wields as much power as the gay lobby? To have the president himself leading the charge for your rights. This is not a discriminate, this is not a downtrodden group of people. So the point I'm making is that gays have won a significant legal victory by successfully using a false argument to make same-sex marriage possible in all 50 states. So when they say, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history, do you? This is just shorthand, a shorthand way of tying their cause with the civil rights movement and casting those who disagree with them as racists or homophobes or prejudiced or narrow-minded relics and dinosaurs. Don't be fooled by their slippery rhetoric and their false, their false argument. That's a little bit of history. The big question is where to now? Now that the ruling of the court has come down, what do we do? How do we change the ruling? What kind of laws should we create to protect churches and ministers and Christian institutions like schools and colleges against lawsuits and other attacks? I suppose these things need to be considered. 
But for most of us Christians who are not lawyers or responsible for Christian universities or organizations, what do we do in the face of this change in the moral order of our country? And believe me, this has been a change in the moral order. I make some suggestions. Number one, stop being surprised and discouraged at what an unbelieving and unregenerated world does, for starters. Let's stop wringing our hands. How could this have happened? How could it not have happened? Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men. Does that sound familiar? The lusts of men. But for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. Does that sound familiar? Could somebody have written that today for our generation? Hmm. Listen to what he says and they malign you. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history, do you? You don't want to be considered a homophobe, do you? From the very beginning, the church has been at odds with the world. Peter is reminding his readers of the status quo that existed then and continues now. What did you think would happen when the Supreme Court refused to hear or give credit to any argument for traditional marriage based on the Bible? Did you know that? If you were a lawyer presenting a brief to the Supreme Court in defense of traditional marriage, you could come at it from any perspective, but if you walked in there and said, well, the Bible said, meh. No, 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 we don't want to hear that. That's a non-argument. That's a non-starter. What did you think would happen if you couldn't appeal to the ultimate lawgiver for your case? In this world there's only discouragement and turmoil. Don't let that reality get you down. Remember what Jesus said in John 16, 33, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage, he said, I have overcome the world. He didn't say, but take courage, you have to overcome the world. He said, take courage because I have overcome the world. I've done it for you. Here's another suggestion. Stop worrying about the decline of the world. It's normal. Brothers and sisters, stress over the decline of morality and values and conduct in this world. We worry if our grandchildren will be able to survive. The moral condition of the world, you know, it goes up and it down. It's a cycle. You know, there were times that were terrible. How about the time of the Roman Empire? Would you like to live in that time? And how would you like to live in the Middle Ages? 
And then there were times, relatively speaking, that were good, perhaps after World War II in America, good times. But the pendulum, you know, it swings back and forth between these two extremes and it'll continue to do so until Jesus returns. What did He say in Matthew 24 in verse 36? He says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and they did not understand, that's the key, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. You see, the thing to be concerned about is not the condition of an unbelieving, wicked world. No. The thing to focus on is our own condition, our own readiness. Unlike the world, we know that Jesus is coming and we know how to be ready for Him. The Bible has already told us that the world will not be ready. He just said it. They won't be ready. They'll be marrying and giving in marriage. You know, business as usual. And then it'll be over. So why are we surprised that the world somehow isn't getting ready for Christ? Jesus told us they wouldn't be ready. Just make sure you're ready. Just make sure you're ready. Then one last suggestion. You know what I said? Stop being surprised and worried. Stop stressing over the decline. And stop trying to fix everything. I mean, there are any number of organizations that are trying to fix the environment, the poor, the immigrants, the rights of women and gays and union workers. You know, I mean, there's a whole industry out there trying to fix everything. I'm not saying that these and other efforts are wasted or not worthy. I mean, Christianity needs to affect the world in a positive and constructive way. Jesus said, we're the salt, we're light, right? But these things don't achieve our primary goal as a church, which is the salvation of souls. Jesus didn't tell us to go out and fix the world. He told us to go out and call people to come out of the world and into the kingdom of God, which is the church, to come out of the kingdom of darkness and go into the kingdom of light. That's our job. We can't save the world in that sense. It is already set for destruction when Jesus comes. We can only provide the means to escape the world and the sure destruction that it will suffer through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's all we can really do for the world. There's no fixing the world. There's just coming out of the world. That's the only thing that can be done. In closing, I'd like to acknowledge that we are on the wrong side of history. When somebody tells me that, I say, thank you. (laughs) I appreciate you saying that. Just like Noah, he was on the wrong side of history too for a hundred years. Just like Jeremiah, for most of his life in ministry, he was on the wrong side of history till the army showed up. And just like Jesus, he was really on the wrong side of history for about three days and three nights. 
But brothers and sisters, I'd rather be on the wrong side of history written by man than the wrong side of God and what is written in His book of life. That's the right side I want to be on. So let's not be discouraged, shall we? Let's not be afraid. This may be a time of testing and pruning for the church, for ourselves. You know what? So what, what will happen if the government decides to take away our tax-free status? Come on, can we talk here? What's going to happen to all of you? Right? Will you still come to church? Will you still put money in the plate if all of a sudden you can't get a tax-free ticket for that? Is, that? is that what's going to drive you away? And let's not compromise what we know to be true about marriage from God's word. You know, I really wouldn't want to go to jail I really wouldn't. But I will not sustain the lie that is being foisted upon our nation. It's wrong. It's a lie. It's of the devil. We need to find ways to articulate this without being mean-spirited. You know, a lot of what turns people against us is not simply our Bible teaching. Many times it's this kind of self-righteous, mean-spirited attitude. We can do without that. A lot of times homosexuals can't see Christ in us. And so it makes it easy for them to reject Him because of us. And they so need Him so badly. I, I've known men, women who are gay, and I want to tell you, nobody, nobody, nobody ever kind of begins having the feelings that they're attracted to the same sex, you know, like all of a sudden they're like sexually attracted to the coach. Or, you know. Nobody has that feeling and says, yes, I'm gay, I'm so happy. No. No, the first reaction is, oh no, please, I hope this is not happening to me. And it takes a lot of getting used to and a lot of you know, affirmation by society to tell you, you're really okay, you're really okay. And let's be about our Father's business, shall we? Not fixing the world or being discouraged by the sin in the world, but rather preaching the good news to the world. If we're busy doing this, we're not going to be burdened by the other stuff. Uh, you know what? We need to double down. Not to shrink back and hide. We need to double down in what we're doing. You know, VBS, double down. World Bible School, double down. Bible Talk, double down. This sermon is going on the line. Online. And we have, what, 10,000 viewers that come to our websites, like having an audience of 10,000 people. I hope they hear it. We need to double down in what we're doing, not, not stand back. It's anticlimactic to offer an invitation at this point, but it is a good tradition. So you've got the lesson. 
You've got the exhortation. Don't be afraid. Double down. And if, if someone is here that needs to take this particular opportunity to confess Christ and be baptized, amen. Do it. And if there's someone here who's been shrinking back and afraid and needs the courage to step up and double down and you need the prayers and the encouragement of the church, do it. And if you've been doing not much and you need to repent of that, then do it. And do it while we stand and while we sing the song that we have selected this morning. God bless you.